Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We've all seen the movies with the relentless pursuer who means harm at the end of the chase. What if instead the goal was rescue instead of harm, victory instead of defeat? Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Psalm 23 with this sermon entitled The Lord is Our Victor, which covers Psalm 23 verses 5 and 6. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen and amen. Well, it was January of 2012, and I found myself in the Louisiana Superdome at the national championship game, football game, between Alabama and LSU. The reason I was there is uh, at the time I was leading a crew, campus ministry at the University of Alabama. And in the years that I had been leading it there, um, I had been able to get to know a number of the football players and uh, befriend some of them. And there were some that I was uh, able to spend a lot of time with in a, in a discipleship relationship context. And there were two guys in particular that were on that team that were brothers that I had grown very close to spent a lot of time with, getting in the Word together, talking about the Lord and what it means to walk with Jesus. And because of our relationship, they had invited me to sit with their family on the 50-yard line, which was like a dream come true. National championship, 50-yard line, right? Now, some of you know, and I'm, you know, I don't want any comments. I'm a graduate of Alabama, so this was a big deal for me. And as I sat there in the game, I, I kept going, this, this could not get possibly any better. What I didn't know is after the game, now of course Alabama won, but uh, after the game, (laughs) Georgia fans are going, "Uh, you didn't win this year. Um, After the game, what I didn't know is we, we had won and there was a plan in place that if Alabama had won, that uh, some families had gone in together to rent out the Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in the French Quarter there in New Orleans. And I'm just tagging along. <laughs> I show up, I don't know exactly what all's happening, but all I know is next thing is I'm from midnight till about 3 a.m. I am eating a five-course meal. 
And I am, it is a, it is a celebration of victory. It is, it is a, to the, uh, to the victor go the spoils, right? And we are just having a blast. Now it occurs to me at some point, either while I'm there or later on, I think about the fact that I got to experience the celebration of those who won as though I were a part of it. I didn't do anything. I mean, I cheered, right? And I, I was a little hoarse from yelling so much, but no blood, sweat, and tears on the field. I, you know, we love to say as fans, we, we won. And I wonder sometimes, I even ask players, what did you do? You know, they're saying, what did you do, right? Is it we? And, and of course they love, our, they love fans, but they're the ones who did all the work. But it was through them and my attachment to them, if you will, my relationship with them, that I experienced the victory with them. I partook in the celebration of victory with them. They were the victor, but I got to be the victor with them based on what they did. And it's such a little picture, even of the gospel, is it not? That here we are, those who have done nothing, we have not in any way done anything to warrant God's grace and forgiveness, but yet he came and he was the one who lived the sinless life in the flesh, in human flesh. He's the one who went to the cross to, as the sinless one to make perfect sacrifice for the penalty of sin. And then he was the one who went to the grave because the ultimate penalty of sin is death and he, he was victorious over death itself, our greatest enemy. So that in faith, through faith in him, we had the unbelievable privilege of being united to him as our victor. Meaning that his victory over death becomes our victory over death. Though we didn't do anything to deserve it. We get to participate in the victory of it. Christ is our victor. Listen to this. I, I love this language. We, the often defeated ones, live united to the victorious one. And in him and with him, we dine on the goodness of his kingdom, even now in the presence of our enemies. Let me read that again. We, the often defeated ones, live united to the victorious one. And in him and with him, we dine on the goodness of his kingdom, even now in the presence of our enemies. We could sum that up by saying this. As we've walked our way through Psalm 23 in the first four verses, we've seen time and time again that the shepherd leads us. But what we're gonna focus in on today is that the shepherd who leads us also spoils us. And that might even sound a little odd to you, especially if you've grown up in a Presbyterian tradition like, like this church. We don't use that language very often, probably because it's been misused a lot. You hear that the Lord spoils his people, you might go, oh, that makes me uncomfortable because there is such a thing out there, an erroneous teaching called the prosperity gospel that begins to put us at the center of the story to say that God has done all that he's done just so that he can make everything about our health and our wealth and our prosperity, and that's certainly not true. 
But what is taught in scripture very appropriately, even here in Psalm 23, is that the shepherd who has led us even into the dark valleys of the night, even into the darkest of shadows, is the one that in him and in his presence, we experience the great joy and the great spoils, if you will, of his victory. That he's the one who leads us, but he's also our victor. Listen to the language again. Verses five and six, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't forget that these two verses are coming right behind, naturally, verse four. And what was verse four? Verse four was, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil for you, your rod and your staff that come for me. In other words, you're the shepherd who will take me there. And as we talked about last week, you'll do it on purpose. You plan it, you purpose it. And you do it for my good, but don't forget where it's all going. It's all going to the point of saying that at, in part in this life, mostly spiritually, but certainly in full in the next life, it will be an enormous, extravagant celebration of victory over the presence of darkness. Where he is leading in the meantime is hard. Where we will land in the long term is beyond our wildest imagination. Now there's debate among scholars about these two verses in the sense of, does the shepherd motif continue? In the first four verses, it's been very clear David is wanting us to see this analogy of, of shepherd and sheep and understanding that God is our shepherd and we are the sheep. There's debate over, does that continue in verses five and six? Some think it does, others, most scholars that I've read at least, say that it doesn't, that we shift with more intimate language, if you've noticed, if you're paying attention in the first four verses, it was that third person, he, he leads me, he guides me, he comforts me, right? Then in verse five that we're looking at today, verses five and six, it moves to that second person, you. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And so with that shift, many scholars would say that it shifts into out of that sheep metaphor and into now we're humans at an actual table. But there are some who say, no, the sheep shepherd analogy continues. One of those is Philip Keller, who I've quoted various times throughout this series, who wrote the uh, the well-known book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, he thinks it continues. And it's interesting. He brings up, as a former shepherd himself, some things that we might not naturally pick up on that are present in verses five and six about a shepherd and his sheep. Here's, I'll just hit a couple of them quickly. He says that, you know, when you're leading shepherd, uh, sheep as a shepherd, remember back to what we talked about last week, that in the summer months, Shepherds would lead their sheep up to higher altitudes so that they could be in cooler weather and graze up there on the mountainside or even on a mountaintop, depending on the height of the mountain. And that the most logical way to get there was often through valleys that could sometimes be treacherous. But in leading them up there, they're leading them to better pasture for, for them, right? And he's, he said this in, in the reading of Philip Keller. He said that there would be times often where the shepherd would contain the sheep in a makeshift uh, fence on the way up the mountainside and he would go before them. 
And what he would do is he'd go before them and that oftentimes what he was going up to was a part of a mountain that was either on the mountainside or on the top that was flat, plateauish. And they would call these tabletops. Naturally, we have words for those, mesa, so forth. And so he would say that what David is even remembering is that as a shepherd, you, you prepare a table for me is literally that this is what shepherds would do. They'd go up to that tabletop of a pasture on the mountainside and they'd prepare it for the sheep. They'd go through the pasture and they would remove any poisonous weeds that they knew the sheep would not be able to decipher and that would eat naturally with the good grass. It's a painstaking job, but they would do it by hand until they brought the sheep up. They would go before them and look for predators and try to kill or chase away any potential predators. Uh, they would go up to that tabletop of a, of a place of pasture and they would cleanse any drinking holes, meaning they would remove all leaves and debris out of potential drinking holes so that when he indeed leads them to still waters, these sheep are drinking full clean water. One of the most interesting things that Keller brings out is he says that uh, the, the piece about that you anoint my head with oil, that shepherds would actually do this with sheep and still do to this day. Because even in that higher altitude, it's still summer and flies are still present. And there were different types of flies that would uh, lay their larvae, a little gross, I know, in the nose of the sheep and in the ears of the sheep. And to the point that once that happened, they would be so annoyed and so pestered by what was happening inside their ears and nose that they would bang their heads trying to get relief, even sometimes to the point of death. There was also a disease called scab that developed on the faces of sheep in the summertime. And the way that it was transmitted was sheep would rub up against each other and easily pass on the disease. So how did you protect from both the flies and from the disease? Is you, the shepherds would anoint, if you will, the sheep's head, the sheep heads, and they would then uh, cover them with this mixture of sulfur, smelled great, um, herbs, and oil. They would anoint the heads of the sheep with oil to protect the ears and the nose from the flies and to keep scab from spreading. Here's the whole point. If the shepherd motif continues, then all it's teaching us is this, and it's not just all, it's profound, that we have a good shepherd who abundantly goes before us, provides for us, protects us, and even prays for us. You remember what happened with Peter? Jesus is the good shepherd of Peter, warns Peter, hey, the enemy, Satan, is trying to sift you like wheat, and I'm gonna pray for you that you do not succumb to his temptations. You remember what Jesus, what we're told about Jesus in Romans chapter eight, that he now sits at the right hand of the Father, and what is part of what he's doing as he sits there, reigning over all the heavens and the earth? He's praying. He's praying for his sheep. He's interceding on our behalf. What does Jesus do often? He goes before us in such a way that he removes the poisonous weeds that are in the pastures of our lives. Because who are we? We are people that we wanna, we wanna eat, eat it all and see if it's good for us. And he warns us. He prepares our hearts. He prepares the table for us. He protects us, provides for us, prays for us. This is who our good shepherd is. But if you move towards the belief that, well, the shepherd analogy stops there, and now we're humans around a table, just as powerful, just as significant. 
There's two things that I want you to notice that as we play out that scenario, come into view about who our God is. First, that he's an extravagant host. An extravagant host. We've moved from the pasture. Now we are in the tent of the shepherd and we are around an extravagant table of provision. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is a victory celebration. This is a banquet that's pointing us to two realities. One, that now, even in this body of sin that we're left in, in, in uh, until he comes, we're still experiencing foretastes of this type of abundance. Again, more spiritually than anything, we are dining on him. Remember again, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Jesus is presenting himself as the very essence of what's on the table to say that I don't just lead you to a table, I lead you to me as the bread of life, as the fountain of living waters. God is abundantly, extravagantly gracious. And it makes us think about David. What might be happening in the life of David that causes him to use this picture for us? We don't know when he penned Psalm 23 in terms of how old he was, but maybe it happened after the events that, that occurred and are recorded for us in 2 Samuel 17. We pick up in the story of David at that point where David is on the run. He's lost the throne of Israel temporarily, and he's lost it actually to his son, Absalom. And Absalom has not only taken over the throne, but he is seeking David's life, and he's chasing after him to kill him. He's pursued him into the Judean desert, and David is hiding out in caves. And as he's in this dry and weary land that the Psalms even speak of, David is low on food and water. He has no abundance. Yet in in 2 Samuel 17, there's something profound that happens. It, it, it reads that literally as David turns the corner, there are three men that I won't go into who they were, but they have prepared a table for him in the desert, literally in the presence of his enemies. And he turns the corner and this is what he sees. These men are waiting on David to provide for him this, beds, Basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd. Now for us, we go, I don't know if that sounds good or not. But to ancient Israelite, man, that is, that's my steak and baked potato, right? That is, that is a feast. And it, was it at this point, could it have been at this point that for the first time, David actually had the thought, oh Lord, you are so good. I am in the valley of the shadow of death, yet you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And this is literally true now as I sit in the Judean desert, but it's true all the time, Lord. 
no matter what I'm going through, you are that abundant meal that my heart dines on. You are the one who satisfies me to the deepest longings. Could this be why David wrote in Psalm 63 that you, O Lord, are the richest affair. You are like the best of foods. David is seeing Jesus, even though he doesn't know his name yet, he knows there's one coming who will be for him everything that he longs for. And he's tasting that in Yahweh even now. Who are our enemies, by the way? I'm gonna encourage you to not read Psalm 23 thinking about the coworker you can't stand. I'm gonna encourage you to not be thinking of a family member or anyone horizontally in your life. Certainly we have enemies and certainly the Lord will be a God of justice. He is a God of justice. But I want you to be reminded of who the Bible wants us to first see, preeminently see and understand is our enemies. When we're told that the Lord prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, it's not primarily against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I, I, I want us to think, God wants us to see that our primary enemy, our overwhelming enemy is Satan and his minions, so to speak. The one who's, who seeks to devour, who prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting to pounce. And that when we are walking with Jesus, when we are satisfied in him, it's as if we are nestled up to the, to the table, the food is in front of us, and we are gorging ourselves on the abundance of our good shepherd and mocking the enemy, saying, you have no power over me and you can do nothing to me, even to the point to where David says in another Psalm, he says, you can take my life. What can man do to me? Sure, he can kill me, but I am the Lord's and he is my abundant feast. In the presence of my enemies, the Lord prepares a table. But I want you to notice something else that's happening here. It says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It was customary in that day for servants to be the ones who would anoint the head of guests as they came in, that was customary, to a banquet, to a feast. But then they would also make sure that the cups were always full, that you always had your full to drink. But notice in Psalm 23, who is the servant? Who is the servant in Psalm 23? It's the shepherd. And as we see now through the big lens of scripture, we know that shepherd's name to be Jesus. And we remember the words of Jesus when Jesus said that I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. 
We remember that Jesus, on the, on the night that he was betrayed, as he's getting ready to institute the Lord's Supper, what does he do? He takes upon the form, literally, of a servant, and he washes the disciples' feet, and they, they don't want him to because they go, this is the lowest of low. This is what the, the lowest of servants do, and Jesus takes off his outer cloak to, to even look like a servant, and he says, but this is what I came to do, to serve you, to give myself such that you would be filled in me through my service to you. And we go, why? You're the God of the universe. I'm the one who, through my sin, has spat in your face my entire life. I didn't want you, Jesus. And he says, yes, I know, but I want you. He's the servant in Psalm 23. He's the one. When you talk about being in the presence of the enemies, we're remembering back to the very beginning, Genesis 3, 15, where God is pronouncing judgment upon the man and on the woman and on the serpent. And in the worst of news, God in his grace can't, he can't not let a moment of good news to come into play. And he says in Genesis 3, 15, he says, serpent, you're gonna think that you've done something great. You're gonna bruise the heel of the offspring of this woman. That's the cross. You're gonna think you've done great damage to him, but don't be mistaken. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This is the servant who crushes the head of the serpent. And in him, in that crushing of the serpent, we find our victory and our abundance. But there's more that's happening in Psalm 23. Well, let me read this to you before we get to that real quickly here. Listen to Jesus' words. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. Abundantly. Sometimes I don't think we believe God when he says that. Or we misinterpret it to mean that what, if anything hard happens in my life, I guess God's not for me and doesn't want abundant life for me. Remember, the abundant life is in Christ. But do you, do you know what comes next? John 10, 10, we, we memorize that verse if we've been in church. It's a, it's a famous one. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly, but keep reading. What does he say next? What's the very next thing out of his mouth? Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But secondly, not only is the Lord our extravagant host, the Lord is our faithful friend. I struggled with what word to use here. I had intimate for a while. He's our intimate friend, which is certainly represented in the text. That he's our enduring friend, that he's our eternal friend. All that's true and accurate, but faithful might be the one that captures it most. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two things that are at play here that remind us of the faithfulness of God. First is that word that we see translated most often as mercy. That's the Hebrew word hesed, which is most often translated as the steadfast love of God the sure, the faithful love 
of God. Surely goodness and the steadfast love of God, which is also his mercy. Oftentimes, as I've said often, uh, often we struggle in the English language capturing the depths and the richness of one word in the Hebrew or in in the Greek. And so we just go with what we think is best, but sometimes we lose out because we say mercy and then we think in our English perspective, well, it's just mercy, but it's not just mercy. It's this never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. Steadfast. But then there's another word that is really important here too, where it says that surely goodness, the goodness of the Lord and his mercy and his steadfast and unwavering love follow me. That word follow is interesting. Again, in the original language, it's a rich word that can mean follow, but interestingly, most often is translated in the Old Testament as pursue. It's also translated as chase. All of a sudden, we get a different picture in our mind, do we not? Surely the goodness and the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord pursue me. Chase me down. Why? Because I'm a sheep that wants to wander. I'm not the one leading and his goodness and mercy are just kind of along for the ride following me. No, they're chasing me down as my heart wants to go astray, as I think the green pastures are better in the other field, as I eat of the poisonous weeds of the heart, as I continue to think that there are better things than Jesus out there. He will not let me go. He pursues and he pursues and he chases me down. That is the steadfast love of the Lord. And David is saying, this is who you are, God. You love us so much that you prepare a table before us, even in the presence of our greatest enemies, and you will not stop chasing us with your goodness and with your love. And it's not just an experience that we get from God in the here and now, it's eternal. In fact, it's even more to be realized in the eternal. When, Davis, when, when David concludes, but surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This God of all grace and comfort and mercy has invited us in to his table to lavish us with abundance in his presence and to never stop pursuing us until we are with him in glory. The August 14th, 2006 edition of Newsweek featured a picture of Billy Graham on its cover and an eight-page article about the then 87-year-old evangelist. This is how the article began. Earlier this summer on a warm Carolina evening, Billy Graham awoke in the middle of the night. He lay in the darkness trying to recite the 23rd Psalm from memory. He begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then for a moment he loses the thread, but soon the last line comes back to him. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Relieved, he drifts back to sleep. Friends, if you find yourself not remembering all of Psalm 23, remember the last line. Surely goodness and mercy pursue me all the days of my life 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me close with this. A few years ago, David Pallison, fellow pastor, he penned Psalm 23 from the perspective of how we often live our lives. Not what Psalm 23 says, but how we often live Psalm 23 to be. This is what he said. This is what he wrote. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. This is how most people approach life. Sadly, this is even how many Christians live daily. So where I want us to end for this series, not just this morning, is reminding each other of what is true was true of our shepherd, was true of his sheep. I want us to stand together and say corporately Psalm 23. You'll see it on the screens. As we hear one another speak the truth of, word of, God, of the word of God over each other's hearts and minds. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.